0: Thank you, Phil, and thank you, let me join my thanks to, to all of you for coming out and braving the snow. Um, sadly, one or two people who were coming from St Andrews haven't been able to, and I'm very grateful to Amber Shadle for stepping in for my assistant who has sent the PowerPoint, but the trains have been cancelled and he was coming down with flu anyway, so I'm delighted and we hope the PowerPoint works um, as the others have been doing. And you should all have a handout as well, that's happened, hasn't it, yes, thank you. And, uh, Yeah, this is an an, an exciting moment for me and it is, as Phil said, something of a a culmination to the argument and from here it flows into next weeks. It is love that believes the resurrection. Ludwig Wittgenstein's famous saying sets both the goal and the puzzle for this lecture. One can imagine Wittgenstein's hearers rolling their eyes at another zen-like paradox wondering, indeed, what exactly he meant by love and by resurrection and, indeed, by believe. Now, I don't know whether Wittgenstein ever unpacked this saying. It appears in his writings like Melchizedek without father, mother, or genealogy. That, however, seems appropriately oriented to the subject matter. Since Jesus' resurrection is presented in the early Christian texts not as one element in a series, not as an easily grasped part of a larger whole, but as something which is what it is and means what it is and is known as it is known, primarily in the new world which it launches. It is indeed according to the Scriptures, but even those who knew those Scriptures well hadn't seen it coming. The resurrection brings its own world with it. When I wrote those words, I was reminded of when Archbishop Rowan Williams made a farewell speech in General Synod in honour of Bishop Colin Buchanan. Buchanan had been for years one of the most learned men on the Church of England's liturgical commission, where he had regularly challenged fluffy and romantic liturgical proposals. Archbishop Rowan said that Buchanan had been likened to a bull that brings his own china shop with him. Well, the resurrection of Jesus brings its own ontology and epistemology with it. And this regenerates and transforms and redirects the ancient Jewish cosmology and eschatology that we looked at in the last lecture. It is love that believes the resurrection because love is the most complete form of knowing and the resurrection is the most complete form of event. The modern world, of course, has not seen it that way. The rejection of the resurrection, I suggested earlier, is cognate with modernity's Faustian refusal of love. And that's why I have attempted in these lectures a slow outflanking strategy, coming round the back of our assumed Epicureanism with its split cosmos and divided time, and proposing that there might be another way, a Jewish and then early Christian way, Of understanding space and time and human beings. The knee-jerk rejection of this kind of proposal as unacceptable in our modern critical world is pure smokescreen. There is nothing modern about Epicureanism. The ancientness of the Jewish and Christian worldview cannot be used as a rhetorical scare tactic to stop the message of new creation infiltrating tomorrow's world. What matters, once again, is history, not historicism, not reductionism, but patient attention to evidence, abductive essays in hypothesis, and verification through narrative proposal. So where do we begin? Resurrection and history and the meaning of resurrection. I was struck 40 years ago by the conversation with Karl Barth that T.F. Torrance reports in Space, Time and Resurrection. Torrance had commented to Barth that some scholars thought of resurrection in a docetic way, lacking concrete ontological reality, and he describes how Barth leaned over to him and said with considerable force which I shall never forget, Mark well, Bodily resurrection. That is a fine moment in the history of modern theology. But my point is that it should never have been necessary. The reason for agreeing with Bart here is not a theological a priori. We don't like Docetism, so let's say it must have been bodily. But rather a matter of history. Because in the first century, a non-bodily resurrection would have been a contradiction in terms. Resurrection meant bodies. To think otherwise is to fail on your linguistic homework. Yes, the language of resurrection can be used metaphorically. Yes, from the late second century, Gnostic writers began to use the word to mean Platonic soul survival. But Jews or Greeks who wanted to say that had perfectly good language to do so, and the word resurrection would, in Paul's day, have made entirely the wrong point. The home base for the metaphor and for the Gnostic mutation was that resurrection always meant some new kind of bodily life. The other thing to get clear, the possibility of resurrection, is that everybody in the first century world, except for the Pharisees and those Jews who followed them, understood what resurrection meant and knew it was impossible. From Aeschylus to Marcus Aurelius, from Homer to Hadrian, This is clear. Philosophically and politically, we can see why. Paul said that the gospel was foolishness to Greeks and scandalous to Jews. But let's be more precise. The resurrection is impossible for an Epicurean, undesirable for a Platonist, unnecessary for a deist, and meaningless for a pantheist, and scary for an emperor. But within the world we sketched last time, the world shaped by a temple cosmology, a Sabbath eschatology, and an image-based anthropology, the resurrection becomes the new microcosmos in which the age to come appears within the present time. The glory has returned. The new world is born in the midst of the old, and it makes sense of the old like nothing else. The resurrection is simultaneously a very strange, though sense-making, event within the present world and the foundational and paradigmatic event within the new world. And Temple and Sabbath help us to understand how this works, even though nobody had seen it coming. Here at last, the question of the resurrection begins to address directly the question of natural theology. Today's skeptics and today's conservatives both get it wrong because the modern Epicureanism within which both live has flattened out the antithesis. Most people today, of course, agree with the ancients. Resurrection doesn't happen in the natural world, so it can't have happened. I was once doing a television program with Gerd Ludemann, German skeptic uh, New Testament scholar, and at this point he thumped the table and said, we know that the body of Jesus has molded in the tomb. In other words, rotted in the tomb. And I said, how do you know that? He said, I have 200 years of of scientific historiography on my side. I said, 200 years? Homer knew that people didn't rise from the dead. Seneca knew that. Give yourself some credit here. It, It didn't take Voltaire and Rousseau or Darwin or anybody else to discover that when people die, they stay dead. So the apologist who then says that it did happen The apologist who then invokes something called the supernatural to explain it is simply leaping across Lessing's ugly ditch, but it leaves the ditch still there. And worse, this just makes the resurrection an example of something else, namely the supernatural, whatever that is, rather than itself being the starting point, the new reality that brings its own ontology and epistemology with it. Now, similar anxieties are raised when we investigate the resurrection historically. Theologians worry that if we elevate history as the benchmark, that becomes the ultimate reality, and resurrection has to fit in, or more likely, be ruled out accordingly. That, too, reflects the wrong approach. Supposing heaven and earth really are mutually porous. Supposing the future might arrive, within the ongoing present. Note again, you can't start with Temple and Sabbath and image and deduce Easter. If you could have done, the two on the Emmaus Road wouldn't have been so worried. But if you start with Easter and look back, what you see is not something called the supernatural, but a classic Jewish philosophical framework within which this new event might make sense. So this opens up a fresh line of inquiry parallel to my case in The Resurrection of the Son of God and Surprised by Hope. There I argued that the early Christian vision of post-mortem reality, what's going to happen to us after we die, short-term, long-term, was recognizably Jewish, which is itself surprising since most early Christians were Gentiles, but that it involved a consistent and radical set of mutations from within the Jewish view. How do you explain it? Easily the best way is to say that the early Christians really did believe that Jesus had been raised in a transformed physicality, launching God's new creation on earth as in heaven. And when we allow good history to defeat the defeaters, suggestions about hallucinations and wrong tombs and cognitive dissonance and so on, we are bound to conclude that the best explanation for their belief is that it was true. And this then, of course, poses a direct challenge to Epicureanism, ancient or modern. Let's be clear. One or two reviewers of The Resurrection of the Son of God were not clear on this point. This does not constitute a quasi-rationalist apologetic victory. Some apologists make similar arguments and then imply that unless people now believe it, they must be either stupid or wicked or both. No. No. These questions drive us back to worldview issues. We can't avoid them by invoking the normal modern versus ancient standoff. And what then matters is exploring how the elements make the sense they might do and what sort of a challenge they pose. I had this discussion with my former philosophy tutor, Christopher Kirwan from Exeter College, Oxford. I sent him the resurrection of the Son of God. He's a lifelong atheist. He read the book. He wrote me a nice letter. He said, you made an excellent case. It all works. I simply choose to believe that there must be another explanation for how Christianity got started. I said, fine, okay, you realize this is a choice. This is not because you live in the modern world, you know it can't have happened. You realize there's a worldview choice when you're faced with this evidence. So I now want to offer a parallel, a new but parallel argument based on what I've said so far. The nexus of temple and Sabbath and image can be mapped onto the larger Jewish eschatological narrative of exile and restoration, of the true king winning the battle and rebuilding the temple so that Israel's God can return and reign in glory. And this age to come, anticipated in every Sabbath, would fulfill the covenant and restore creation. All this speaks of forgiveness of sins, not just for individuals, but as in the prophets for Israel as a whole. You can see this eschatological complex in the flesh and blood revolutionary and political movements of Jesus' day, from the Maccabees to Bar Kokhba, Many interpretations of Israel's apocalyptic eschatology focus here on battle and temple, on the coming jubilee of freedom, usually on a supposedly royal leader apart from Qumran, none of them seems to major explicitly on the forgiveness of sins, except in the sense that it was sin that caused Israel's exile and the destruction of the temple, so that restoring and rebuilding the temple would in themselves constitute divine forgiveness, exactly as in Isaiah or Jeremiah. Now, as with my earlier argument about beliefs of life after death, The young Christian movement was recognizably Jewish. It pressed all the buttons, though in an unexpected way. The royal leader had won the decisive battle. The early Christians said that. The temple was destroyed and rebuilt. John makes that clear. Daniel's long exile was over. Freedom and forgiveness had arrived in the present. The covenant had been renewed. Creation was restored. The one God had returned in a shockingly new kind of glory. Those were the major themes of early Christian belief, though, sadly, you might not know it from those schemes which project backwards the belief structures of the 4th or the 16th or the 19th century. That's again a failure of history. It's an attempt to make the past in one's own image. We know that those features I've just run through were major elements in Second Temple Jewish practical eschatology actual revolutionary movements. And we know from careful historical exegesis that they were major themes in early Christianity, but they now appear in a totally different guise. You couldn't have predicted early Christianity from the Jewish matrix, but that's where it belongs, albeit in perhaps doubly revolutionary mode. Very quickly, there are seven mutations within the Jewish hope, which only make sense within that Jewish world but which proposed something which nobody had previously imagined. First, the early Christians proposed that the scripturally promised kingdom of God had arrived. Eschatology had been inaugurated. The Psalms and prophets had come true, though in ways nobody expected. Second, the long exile of Deuteronomy 27 to 29 and Daniel 9 was finally over. The retrieval of these passages, not least of the covenant renewal promise of Deuteronomy 30, makes it clear in the New Testament. Third, forgiveness of sins was therefore central to the early Christian DNA. That doesn't just mean God forgiving individual sins because of Jesus' death, though surely it does mean that. That is one dimension of the larger truth. Isaiah's promises had come true. The Israelite sins that had caused the exile had been dealt with. And the Gentile sins that characterized their age-long idolatry were likewise dealt with. Hence the theological rationale for the Gentile mission. God has defeated the enslaving powers, so non-Jews are free to repent and receive forgiveness. Fourth, in consequence, the great Sabbath, the jubilee, has been inaugurated. How many times should you forgive, asks Peter in Matthew 18. Seventy times seven, replies Jesus, resonating with Leviticus 25 and Daniel 9. And mutual forgiveness is built into the Lord's Prayer itself, which is the kingdom prayer designed to function as a little temple. Sabbath-keeping is now Theologically irrelevant, if I dare say that, in the north of Scotland, as in the Gospels and Romans 14. This has nothing to do with Jewish legalism versus Christian libertarianism. It's about inaugurated eschatology. For John, Jesus' followers are eighth day people, fulfilled creation people, Sabbath people every day of every week. We share the rest which Jesus promises in Matthew 11. Hence, the early Christians' talk of joy and peace. What Jews celebrate every Sabbath was to be the constant life of Jesus' followers. Fifth, then, the new temple has been built, and as Paul says, that temple is you. Jesus himself is the new temple, but Jesus' followers indwelt by the Spirit also constitute the temple. In Revelation, with its sabbatically echoing sevens, the holy city coming down from heaven is a giant cube, a massive holy of holies at the heart of the new temple, which is the new heaven and earth reality. There is no temple in the city because the microcosm and the macrocosm are now one and the same thing. Sixth, the messianic victory has already occurred. In Colossians, Jesus overthrows the rulers and authorities and makes them a public example. In John, Jesus' crucifixion will overthrow the ruler of this world. And this redefinition, the real battle with the real enemy, means that unlike most Second Temple eschatological movements, Jesus' followers were people of peace. Jesus said, if my kingdom was from this world, my followers would be fighting to stop me being handed over. But now, clearly, it's a kingdom of a different sort. It's come from... It is for this world, but it's from somewhere else. Evil still seemed powerful, but for the early Christians, the means of overcoming evil had been unveiled, and it wasn't through force of arms. It was through suffering love. Seventh and finally... Yahweh had returned in person. This is the heart of early Christology, though normally ignored. As Richard Hayes has shown, and I think we can go further still, all four evangelists see the story of Jesus as the story of how Israel's God kept his promises by coming in person to rescue his people, to renew the covenant, to rescue humans and creation itself from their slavery to decay, and so sabbatically to launch new creation in the midst of the old. Of course, like the other redefinitions, this was shocking and unexpected, although Paul saw that this shock itself was scripturally anticipated. Isaiah 53, 1, which he quotes in Romans 10. Who would have thought that he was the arm of the Lord? The cross and resurrection, therefore, take center stage. This was how Yahweh had done what he had promised to do In person. The God who would not share his glory with another has shared it with Jesus. This only makes sense within the Jewish world, but it is a sense that no pre-Christian Jew ever envisaged. The messianic story of Jesus' kingdom announcement, his death, resurrection, and exaltation, turns out to be the self-revelation of Israel's God himself. In and through all these seven points, As a result, the long-awaited apocalypse had occurred. The veil is ripped open at Jesus' death. Heaven and earth, future and present, meet at Easter as the divine glory is perfectly reflected in the true image. Jewish apocalyptic writing and mystical practices had been ways of trying to glimpse in advance what that coming heaven and earth reality might be like. Ephesians functions in the same register, an exalted and now inaugurated apocalypse, with heaven and earth joined together forever in Jesus and the Spirit. And The four Gospels, as I said before, contain material which we have labelled as apocalyptic, but their whole narrative, focused on cross and resurrection, is clearly apocalyptic in historical mode. Look at this story, they say, and see the new temple, the great Sabbath, the kingdom inaugurated, the vision of God himself. This is how the living God is at last made known to the nations. So sense and context, these features of early Christianity, to repeat, make sense within the Jewish world but it is a shocking, unanticipated sense even there. We need both halves of that claim. These features do not make that much sense within 5th or 16th century theology, which is why they've often been ignored or roughly reinterpreted. We cannot use the fact that they were new and shocking in Jesus' day as an excuse for saying that we will therefore ignore the historical context and substitute our anachronistic ones instead. And these features then pose the very obvious question. How can we explain the sudden emergence of a movement at the same time so very Jewish and so very unlike anything known there before? The early Christians say with one voice that it was because a crucified messianic pretender was raised from the dead and that in him they glimpsed God's glory. The historian must ask, how they came so quickly to this rich combination of inaugurated eschatological conclusions. Not just a new set of ideas, but practical conclusions about how they went about busily reordering their common and personal life. Can it really all have happened because some of them had new internal religious experiences? Think for a moment of the historical situation, argument I've used before, but it's worth running again. The Romans killed plenty of other would-be messiahs. They executed Simon Bar-Giora, the supposed king of the Jews in AD 70, at the climax of Titus's triumph. Now, supposing some of Simon's followers had somehow escaped being picked up, and supposing one of them might say a few days later, Simon's been raised from the dead, his companions would laugh bitterly. And if the man persisted and said, oh, he believed that Simon's death had now launched God's kingdom, that they themselves were the returned for exile people, that God had forgiven their sins and that Simon was now installed as king of the world, building his new temple of which they were now part, launching the final great Sabbath, the others would get angry. Don't be stupid. You've gone soft in the head. That's what we hoped would happen. But obviously it hadn't. So what caused Jesus' followers so quickly to say and do what they said and did? It's all there in Paul within 25 years of the crucifixion, sometimes including even earlier formulations. Oh, you can still be a sceptic if you want. Paul or somebody else made it up. They wrote it up. They got the word out so successfully that nobody remembered the sad and sober truth. Calling that conclusion historical critical invites the obvious challenge rather more critical than historical. It reminds me of Christa Stendhal's remark, having attended a secularized and well-refreshed bar mitzvah celebration. He said, rather more bar than mitzvah, I think. (laughs) The modernist reductionism of the Bultmann School flattens out the early Christian movement into a religion in the modern sense, disengaged politically and philosophically, concerned with salvation only in some idealist sense. That's nothing like real early Christianity, and real early Christianity demands a historical explanation. Easily the best, as far as I'm concerned, is that Jesus really was raised to a new kind of physical life, leaving an empty tomb behind him, a new life that did what Temple and Sabbath had spoken of, though in a way nobody could have anticipated. He had joined together God's space and ours, heaven and earth. In him, God's planned future for the whole cosmos was truly anticipated in the present. In him we see revealed the true image of God. So where have we got to epistemologically as well as historically? I've often used the illustration of a college to which an old member deno- denotes, donates. Let's start that again. I've often used the illustration of a college to which an old member donates a magnificent painting. The governing body have to decide where it's going to hang. It's too large for the dining hall. It won't go in the chapel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And eventually they decide the picture is so spectacular that some of the college buildings will have to be pulled down and rebuilt as an appropriate showcase for it. But then, expanding the analogy way beyond easy credibility, they discover that all the things which previously had been wrong with the college now come right. The college is renewed and restored by being redesigned around the unexpected gift. No illustration is perfect but this one holds together the sense that the second temple worldview is the frame within which Jesus' resurrection means what it means, while insisting that that worldview has to be redesigned around the resurrection itself. There is no worldview, ancient or modern, into which Jesus' resurrection, as witnessed in the New Testament, will simply slot in as it stands. But if you put the resurrection in the middle, everything else will gain new coherence around it. That's the kind of proof that works in detective stories, the classic models of abduction. The resurrection, as I said, brings its own ontology and epistemology with it. But the cosmology and eschatology it redesigns around itself are recognizable as the now radically redefined cosmology and eschatology of the ancient Jewish world. And if the resurrection does that with the Jewish world, How much more are thin, modern alternatives of naturalism and supernaturalism? That way of seeing things, which is basically Epicureanism and its mirror image attempted rebuttal, will have to be demolished altogether and new buildings designed from scratch. So what does all this do to epistemology? The combination of temple and Sabbath and image not only enables us to understand a world in which it might make retrospective sense for the creator God to raise Jesus from the dead, it enables us thereby to understand how that knowing and understanding might itself be reshaped. The resurrection of Jesus, comprehensible as the fresh apocalypse apocalypse within the Jewish world we've studied, announces itself as the new creation, not as a replacement for something which has been thrown away, but as the rescue and renewal of the old. This unveils not only the Creator's power, but the Creator's love. As in the covenant language of Deuteronomy or Isaiah, The resurrection reveals that the cross was the supreme act of love and the resurrection itself declares that God so loved the world. The creator loved the old creation itself and had all along been determined to rescue it. If we understand resurrection in merely a platonic sense, as with late second or third century Gnosticism, with Jesus' soul going to heaven and other souls hoping to follow him, then the world of space, time and matter would not be ultimately important and we shouldn't try to deduce from it anything about God's ultimate truth. You don't find Gnostics doing natural theology. But if Easter was the start of a new creation which is a creatio ex vetere, and not a fresh creatio ex nihilo, if the resurrection was therefore an act of love, God's love for the old world and its image-bearing inhabitants, then the old creation, as it plays host to the new, is itself validated, (coughs) reaffirmed retrospectively. Two analogies suggest themselves. First, the story of Israel. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that did not mean that Israel's calling and the temple and Torah and messiahship itself had all been a mistake and should now be replaced by a totally new system. Marcionites, ancient and modern, have gone that route, but that's not what the New Testament says. No. Jesus' death and resurrection retrospectively validated what was there before. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, says Jesus. He saw it and was glad. Second analogy, moral order, as in Oliver O'Donovan's famous argument. We don't simply learn moral order from the present creation. All sorts of things, natural disasters, animal cruelty, moral chaos, forbid us, straightforwardly, to infer a natural law, any more than we can retrieve a butler-like natural theology. But the gospel events do not sweep away creation's inbuilt moral structures. They reaffirm them. Jesus insists in Mark 10, God's kingdom at last fulfills the Creator's intention. From the beginning it was not so, and we're going to be new creation people even if it until then had seemed difficult or impossible, again, as in Mark 10. The point is, you don't get to moral order by simply trying to top up the old world. Grace can't simply perfect nature. It has to do it through cross and resurrection. But resurrection means that you're not starting now with a blank sheet and ignoring the past. Resurrection retrieves the good, older creation, the launch of new creation, reaffirms the God-given order of the old. Now just think about those two examples for a moment. In the first, the story of Israel, the new gospel imperative seemed nonsense, welcoming non-Jews on equal terms without the normal works of the law. That's almost literally unthinkable for a devout Jew. In the second, the question of moral order, The new creation behavior now demanded of Christians was previously thought either impossible or undesirable. The absolute demand for forgiveness, humility, chastity, patience, the care of the poor. As people quickly discovered, these made no sense the way the world was. But when Jesus' followers started to live like that, they displayed a way of being human that appeared Self-authenticating. People looked at them and said, never knew you could do it that way. In both cases, the new pattern was at one level shocking and disruptive and at another level fulfilling and empowering. Paul explains, the Messiah's love leaves us no choice. The creational love now revealed in the gospel launched the new world of ecclesial and moral possibility. Thus, Jesus' resurrection, by unveiling the Creator's love for the world, opens up the space and time for a new holistic mode of knowing, a knowing which includes historical knowledge of the real world, by framing it within the loving gratitude which answers the Creator's own sovereign love. Tabernacle and temple man-made structures, With real curtains and poles, real stone and timber, they existed within the present world and yet were the place where the glorious divine presence had dwelt as a foretaste of new creation. The resurrection revealed Jesus to be the temple in person, the place where all the divine fullness dwelt bodily. Heaven and earth were indeed meant to come together. And in Jesus and then the Spirit, they did. Jesus and the Spirit now became the advanced signs of what God would do for the whole creation. Romans 8 sees um, God doing for the cosmos as a whole what he'd done for Jesus, all because nothing shall separate us from God's love. John 20 describes the first day of the new week with Jesus mistaken for the gardener. The resurrection retrospectively celebrates the garden itself declaring that the promise of spring was not just your imagination. The old creation had all along pointed forwards to this fulfilment. Once you discern the dawn, you realise that even the darkness had been full of hope and longing. So if we recognize in the resurrection the divine love for the creation, the way is open for a typology of knowing in which love can be understood not as the opposite to reason or historical knowledge, nor simply as subjective fantasy, but as the larger framework within which they play their appropriate roles. Let me map this out in five quick stages of which the first is easily the longest. First, knowing is a whole person activity. It involves all aspects of being human. All human knowing, as we are now aware, involves the body and the emotions, not just the senses and the brain. If we try to detach the different aspects of the person from the act of knowing, we end up like the logical positivists with supposedly scientific knowledge being objective, and ethical knowledge being merely emotive or subjective, and, for what it matters, theology or metaphysics being just nonsense. This is part of modernity's Faustian pact, rejecting love and instead grabbing at a knowledge which is part power and part pleasure. Here we tread carefully on a narrow path. On the one side, we have the rationalist temptation. Let's try to prove the resurrection with a resounding QED, compelling everybody to accept it. On the other side, we have the romantic temptation. This warms our hearts so much that we're going to pretend it's true. The first tries to yank everyone into faith by the scruff of the neck. The second leaves faith as a private world, a fairyland, where escapists will mutter to themselves that the heart has reasons which reason ignores. Neither pays sufficient attention to the possibility that when heaven and earth really do overlap, when the age to come really does break into the present age ahead of time, a new image-bearing possibility is awakened, a kind of whole person knowledge we didn't know was possible, a knowledge shaped by and responding to the object of knowledge, namely the creator's love, rather than using its own private method as a Procrustian bed. The point of the heaven-earth overlap is that things happen on earth which are true signs of the presence of heaven and which can therefore be discussed historically, not just in a private sphere called faith. And the point of the overlap of the ages is that things do happen in the present time, which are true anticipations of the ultimate future. If you're picking up sacramental overtones at this point, you're absolutely right. I'll come back to them in a week's time, God willing. In this world of doubled space and doubled time, we are talking about the public world, but a larger public world than that envisaged either by Cartesian induction or by Kantian deduction. To know this world with our whole image-bearing selves means coming out from sheltered epistemological safe zones into a new multi-layered form of knowledge this new mode finally tears up the Faustian Pact, saying to the risen Jesus, like the two at Emmaus, Fafaila du bist so schön, stay a while, you are so fair. And finding in that moment that Mephistopheles has been defeated, that forgiveness of sins, both moral and epistemological, is now a reality, that the college is being rebuilt with the masterpiece at its centre, and that we are members of it. And the college in question is to say it one more time, not a private club for those who share a particular fantasy, but the real world, the world of new creation, and therefore the world of creation itself. And with that we open up at last a fresh possibility of natural theology, of a celebration of creation, which is also a celebration of God the Creator and Redeemer. All this, I'm still within the first point here, I said it's much longer than the others, introduces what I've been calling the epistemology of love. Once more, the suspicion of mere subjectivity raises its head, but something deeper is going on. Rationalism and romanticism are the epistemological twin daughters of modern Epicureanism, trying to make sense of things after humans have been downgraded into random atomic accidents. Platonic answers don't help either. But in the New Testament, love is not just an ethic, not just an emotion, but the highest mode of knowing, including all others within it. If anyone thinks they know something, Paul said to the Corinthians, they don't yet know as they ought to know, but if anyone loves God, they are known by him. The real knowledge isn't your knowledge of the world or God, but God's knowledge of you. And your answer to that knowledge is first and foremost love, because the revelation is itself love. And that's why loving God and neighbor are the greatest commandments, overtaking all sacrifices and burnt offerings. And that's why faith and hope and love are the greatest love above all, not just as virtues, but as modes of knowing. Faith is love reaching out to heaven only to discover that heaven has come to earth and is busy repairing it. Hope is love reaching out to the future only to discover that the age to come has arrived, Sabbath-like in the present, giving rest and refreshment to the tired old working world. It isn't just that love transcends the objective-subjective divide, though that's true too. Paul draws together Romans 8, his new temple chapter his great resurrection chapter his new age chapter by insisting that god works all things for good for those who love him further described as those who are conformed to the image of the son or as in colossians being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator the new kind of gnosis a new kind of knowledge is not a secret gnosis for the initiate paul's vocation is that by the open statement of the truth, he will declare the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the Messiah's image-bearing face. So second, and much, much more briefly, all-knowing is communal knowing. Pretend otherwise, and you land up in solipsism, the phenomenalist's trap. All you know is your own sense data. We all rely on a wider community of some sort to help us with the project of knowing. Abduction itself is regularly a communal activity. That's why the Enlightenment's new epistemologies produced different kinds of revolution. Different communities of knowing came into direct conflict, having, as in other areas, left love out of the equation. Descartes split the epistemological atom and Marx provided the resultant explosion. Third, all human knowing presupposes views of space, time, and matter, and what it means to be human, and to engage in knowing itself, so that all knowing is engagement, not merely detached observation. Knowing is relational, having to do with the to and fro between the knowing subject and the object, whether it's a mountain or a mouse or a movement in a symphony. And the relation is always two-way. If we pretend to passivity, I'm just letting the facts speak to me. That's either naive or it's a cunning power play. To pretend to be be in charge of the data is likewise either naive or a more overt power play. To recognize the necessary two-way nature of engaged relational knowing is to recognize the epistemology of love. Fourth then, our modern world is characterized by claims to knowing which can be unmasked as claims to power. Welcome to Nietzsche's world, to Foucault's world. This fits exactly with the Faustian pact, with empires that claim to make their own truth, with Pilate's cynical question, what is truth? This reflects, again, the modernists' truncated view of being human. Our world is competitive. Our claims to knowledge are attempts to gain mastery over space and time and matter and other image bearers rather than seeing them as gifts of the creator's love. So fifth, returning to the resurrection. If even in the ordinary world something like love insists on making its presence felt within knowing, as a whole person activity, a communal activity, an engaged activity, then even in the present creation, knowing needs to be redeemed by love, rescued from the Epicurean instinct that you find from Machiavelli onwards, unmasked but ultimately shared by Nietzsche with his will to power. And this is why, after all, it is love that believes the resurrection. Because to believe it takes a whole person, not just a convinced mind. It takes a community to confess it properly, not a bunch of isolated individuals. It's a kind of knowing which is caught up in and fully engaged with the drama of the reality which is known. Love in this sense involves humility, recognizing that all knowing involves us small, short-sighted creatures engaging with a wide and complicated world. Instead of trying to grasp it or master it, we are grateful for it and turn that loving gratitude into vocation, the image-bearing vocation once more. So love, the love that discerns the dawn in the resurrection of Jesus, is not something detached from other modes of knowing. Precisely because it is love, it is open to genuine historical investigation. The new creation has arrived in the middle of the old. We can ask perfectly good questions about the old, about an empty tomb, about a broken loaf on the table at Emmaus about footprints on the shore after a Galilean breakfast. The false modesty that has made some theologians shy about such questions is the same withdrawal that has made them anxious about natural theology. But love remains at the heart of a Christian knowing, not only of the new creation, but also of the old. Love is the quality which has been screened out in the Faustian Enlightenment but which addresses and contextualizes and makes sense of and enriches all other modes of knowing while rescuing them from Nietzsche's power trap. Love is thus the foundation for a proper awareness of the goodness of the present creation, as well as the motivation to take part in the Missio Dei. The Son of God, said Paul, loved me and gave himself for me. So, to my conclusion, this is where the either-or of Epicureanism, summed up in Lessing's broad and ugly ditch, is transcended. Love in creation and redemption closes the gap from God's side. Love, as the ultimate mode of human knowing, reaches out in response. In the new creation, there is no more sea, and there is no more ugly ditch either. The divide between eternal and contingent as also between past, present, and future, is overcome by the image-bearer himself, bringing love to birth in the world, and then by those who, in response, are renewed in loving knowledge according to the Creator's image. What does Jesus say to Simon in John 21? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Once the petrine failures, moral and epistemological, are forgiven, love believes and goes to work. And that is why, though the fuller case must wait for the last two lectures, the argument from Jesus' resurrection to a refreshed form of natural theology cannot collapse into mere subjectivism. Love in the form of faith answers the creator's love revealed in the resurrection, the love which our Faustian culture has tried to rule out. Love as historical epistemology opens itself to first-century Jewish modes of thought, instead of assuming a heavy-handed Epicureanism or Platonism, instead of supposing all that to be an ancient worldview which we moderns have left behind. Love as theological epistemology learns to think through a temple cosmology and a Sabbath eschatology, focusing both on the one image-bearer, discovering through both a worldview in which not only the resurrection of Jesus, but through it, the reaffirmation of creation's goodness makes sense, a sense that, so to speak, goes on sensing. And love as vocational epistemology discovers, like Peter, a fresh calling to tend the flock, to feed the sheep, to be for the world what Jesus was, Israel as the father sent me so I send you the commission of love including the commission to speak new creational truth will retrospectively illuminate every earlier glimpse of reality so where does this take us From the start, belief in Jesus' resurrection compelled his followers to ascribe fresh retrospective meaning to his crucifixion. As we shall see next week, the new creational perspective compels us to look back on the world of creation in general, but also on the events concerning Jesus and supremely his crucifixion as the place where and the means by which God's creational and redemptive love might be known, calling forth from us a love which is also knowledge, a knowledge which is also love. With due temerity and slight nervousness, George Herbert's poem Love can perhaps be translated into epistemological mode. Love bade me welcome, yet my mind drew back, eager for fact and proof. But quick-eyed love, observing my sad lack of larger modes of truth, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning, why I stayed wondering. Knowledge I need, I said, worthy the name. Love said, it shall be yours. I, the perverse, the objective, I, the same, who thought to grasp at powers. Love touched my eyes and smiling did reply, who made the mind but I? My mind is darkness, hostile, crushed beneath the load, a stranger and to blame. Come to me then, said love, the stranger on the road. Why then, my heart will flame. You must sit down, says love, and hear my voice. Knowledge and love rejoice. Thank you.